1: With mindfulness, you learn to live in the present. If you walk down the street and you're spending all your time thinking about that conversation you had and rewriting it and the tasks you have to do, you miss the people walking by, you miss the, the clouds after that rainstorm, the colors of you know, the sunset, the lavender and red and orange that's reflected in the windows and in the puddles. You miss your life. Um, And mindfulness becomes liberating in that way.
0: Hey there, Heart Wisdom fam. This is Ganesh Braymiller once again, Jack's media manager, content specialist, and Reishi Sipping Elephant, here to set the stage for a special new episode of the podcast, this time featuring the well-versed and highly prepared Michael Krasny of The Grey Matter Show. Interviewing Jack on some key spiritual topics like mindfulness, loneliness, compassion, gratitude, suffering, meditation, and the Dharma. This is a fresh interview from this year and a true treat to hear Jack's current views on an array of modern topics. But before diving further down the Dharmic depths, let's enjoy a communal wade in the warm and flowing tide pool of Jack's upcoming offerings and events. This may... Join Jack and his beloved Trudy online as they team up for Wisdom 2.0's month-long symposium entitled The Journey of Relationships. Jack and Trudy's session will take place on May 19th, where they will dive into the spirituality of relationship. Then on June 3rd, join Jack online for The Awakened Heart, an invitation to love. A spirit rock event featuring meditation stories and a dialogue on illuminating your own inner gifts. Like last week, I would be totally remiss not to mention Tara Brox and Jack's brainchild for fostering digital community, Cloud Sangha, who just opened two new Jack cornfield focused groups, Loving Kindness and Buddhist Wisdom. Find your digital spiritual community at cloudsangha.co slash Cornfield. And finally, don't sleep on Jack's amazing array of online courses and classes, as well as other exceptional offerings like Dharma Talks, meditations, and articles over on the new jackkornfield.com. And now... As you may have come to expect, it's time for that Rasa, the juice of this fun and flowing episode. Michael Krasny is best known as the three decades host of KQED Forum, the public radio column program that featured distinguished guests to discuss news and public affairs, current events, culture, health, business, and tech. Considered a Bay Area treasure, Krasny continues in retirement to interview opinion shapers of all kinds on Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. For more, visit www.graymatter.show. I would like to thank Michael for his generosity in allowing us to simulcast this illuminating interview with Jack. In this episode, digging deeply into the rather pivotal modern topic of loneliness, Jack is quoted early on saying, we have the capacity to hold our sorrow and our measure of suffering with compassion rather than judgment, rather than fear. Almost as if you could wrap yourself with the cloak of Quan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion. Or Mother Mary so that you know that you're not alone and that you've done this before. Personally, I really love this image. Today I woke up feeling rather lonely and I meandered my way over to my puja table for my morning practice, feeling somewhat emotionally barren and a bit shaky. I noticed my Maharaji blanket laying over my bean bag and I wrapped myself in it for my meditation. The warmth of that spiritual cloak helped me calm my mind and get myself back to a baseline of gratitude and self-love. What Jack is relaying here is that we don't necessarily need a physical blanket for this. We can use the ethereal blanket of the Divine Mother to swaddle us when we need that support. Later in the episode, when discussing how truly liberating mindfulness can be to one's life, Jack is quoted saying, With mindfulness, you learn to live in the present. If you walk down the street and you're spending all of your time thinking about conversations you had and the tasks that you had to do, you miss the people walking by. You miss the clouds after that rainstorm the colors of the sunset the lavender red and orange that's reflected in the windows and puddles you miss your life mindfulness becomes liberating in that way i love how jack paints this so much truly paints this without mindfulness we miss the colors of the sunset reflecting in the puddles as we walk down the street and truly who would want to miss the poetic nuance of our lives Who would want to miss the glimmer in a friend's eye that we notice uh, only through applying that lens of mindfulness? When we are mindful, we are truly present not just for ourselves, but for all those we meet. So, here it is, Heart Wisdom Fam, another delectable episode to feast your ears on. Again, this is Ganesh Braymiller, sending out a love that I truly hope opens your heart, calms your mind, and allows the beauty of your life and your being to shine through any circumstance you are presented with. Warm blankets for all cold shoulders. Blessings, y'all. Enjoy episode 185 of Jack Cornfield's Heart Wisdom, Gray Matter, featuring Michael Krasny.
1: Oh, I'm very glad to see you again, Michael. It's and a pleasure to
2: see you uh, in the flesh. Let's uh, let's talk first about a memory I have—a uh, very memorable evening that occurred a number of years ago. At Masonic Auditorium, I was interviewing you and Pema Chodron, another leading Buddhist teacher and writer, on stage, and everybody had their tickets set, or so they thought. But suddenly, all the electricity went off, and so these people were upset because they didn't know what seats they were assigned to. They didn't have their tickets. There was a bit of, especially among many, probably good. Buddhists.
1: Bad, Buddhists behaving badly at the moment, yes. <laughs> they were, that's a good
2: way to describe it and encapsulate it. And you and Pima were remarkable in that you used that moment to talk about, not. get- I mean, you think about all those people at Southwest Airlines and how they must have felt. You know, I'm thinking about that. Some wisdom here. I mean, you imparted it that night. Maybe you impart it now.
1: Well, there was, um, yes, there was a lot of frustration. People were really looking forward to it, and it was a, It was an electronic and kind of organized mess. Um, So we had a choice. We could kind of pause the program and let everybody stew and wait for a long time. We said, no, we've come here to practice in some way, to learn how to embody graciousness uh, an inner sense of well-being with the vicissitudes, the 10,000 joys and sorrows. Here it's presented. Let's practice with this. And it changed the whole vibe in the whole atmosphere there's a story that happened that night that i'd love to tell also michael if i can of course because it
2: but uh, you just framed it perfectly like just now too yeah
1: because it resonated so once they were all inside and it was like three thousand people we were talking about compassion and teaching and then taking questions and and a young woman stood up and in a very raw way said that her partner had just committed suicide, or or I'm not sure I, that's even a good language anymore, but he died by suicide the week before. Um, and Pamela started to work with her and say, can you hold yourself and him and everything in a field of compassion? And you could feel the room begin to settle with her tremendous grief. Um, People began to breathe a little bit more. And then I could sense how isolated she felt in this and alone. So I said um, to the room, how many of you here have experienced the death by suicide of a family member or someone close to you? Would you raise your hand or would you stand up? 250 people, maybe, you know, 10, 20 percent, some amount stood up and then i asked them to look at this young woman and i asked her to open her eyes and just to gaze around and people looked at her with so much tenderness and understanding in that moment it felt like the room turned from a you know hall in san francisco into a temple because there was so much compassion and love And she really didn't feel alone. She felt, okay, I am supported and held by all these other human beings going through what we do as humans.
2: All these strangers.
1: Strangers, and yet in the moment, not strangers. Yeah. Ah. So that, to me, was one of the moments of that evening that still touches me.
2: It's a lovely story and a story that people should keep in mind. because that can be replicated in so many different ways in terms of compassion and extending the self. I was also thinking, interestingly enough, for some reason, about Ramdas, whom we both knew, and uh, that idea of be here now, and yet there are so many people who are depressed or suicidal. I don't want to get too grim here, but um, the idea of being here now just doesn't even resonate for them. I mean, and then they can have that moment that you just described, and suddenly it can lift them up. But what do you advise or what do your teachings advise about those who don't want to be here? (laughs) You're talking about suicide, uh, who feel that it's just too painful, depressives or people who are going through a kind of grief that's absolutely intolerable.
1: So you're asking a really profound question for us as human beings. How do we manage when things are really terrible? Um, and first I want to speak to suicide for a moment because what I've learned over these many years is that people who want to take their own life you know who want to die are right but there's a confusion a confusion of levels because it's not their body that needs to die it's something that's going on in their life that needs to die whether it's the Isolation and loneliness, whether it's how to deal with the physical pain, whether it's a grief or a loss or something like that, they're in the wrong marriage, they're in the wrong job, they're in the whatever, and they think that their body is the problem, but actually there's a different kind of death that's called called upon that's calling to you to let go and start again, and understanding this often begins to shift the the whole inclination toward toward dying to something that becomes death and renewal for them rather than the end of life. So that's just one part of your question.
2: Are you also getting at the idea that the body is not permanent like the spirit?
1: That too. That too. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is that in your question, it sort of follows on what we talked about that evening with Pemba Chodron. Um, We get so isolated in this society now, um, and all the more so from the pandemic, you know, and there was, I I was in, in, in England and had a chance to go and meet some people in parliament and, you know, got to get introduced to the minister of loneliness in England, which they, you know, they had, had or have, Um, and. Part of the way that we get through the kind of despair or depression or grief has to be in connecting with others. We have to find ways to do that. We are social, wired as social beings from the beginning. Um, And even the smallest gestures of reaching out to the people that you know, those of you who are listening, who are struggling, can make an enormous difference in their life. And so rather than looking at just the, the problem in some way, <laughs> I'm thinking of Mr. Rogers' mother. You probably know this story. But she said, you know, when you see the troubles, don't just focus on the suffering, but look at all the helpers. And that there's some way in what you're asking is for us to reclaim our humanity in this somewhat separated world. And we can do that. Um, I think about the hurricane in Houston when there's that huge flood and, you know, people were on their roofs with their children and their dogs and it was a really terrible aftermath. And then there was the Cajun Navy that came and there were people with airboats coming from Louisiana in the back of their, you know, toad in the back of their pickup truck and all over. And there was this outpouring of human care that happens all the time in response to the troubles of our of our human life. And somehow our capacity to remember this and to reach out, um, it's not just for those people, it's for us, it touches us in the same way. So these are a couple of little responses to that very deep question.
2: Responses that are backed up by empirical data to sound a little bit Maybe overly scientific or something. I mean, when you help other people, when you extend compassion, it winds up actually making you feel better and uplifts your. I use the word spirit advisedly, but it does uplift the spirit.
1: It does, and there's there's some beautiful research by Professor Dacher Keltner, who you might know, who runs do, the Greater yeah. Good Science Center at Berkeley, and great. And part of his research is also about the emotion of awe. Um, and in a sense, to the, our capacity to step back and wonder or mystery at just the fact that the world is here, that there are, you know, redwood trees and there's baked Alaska, and there's, you know, the existence of things. And what, one of the things he discovered was that the most significant um, support or foster, foster of that quality of awe isn't the Grand Canyon or some great, you know, natural beauty that we might see, but seeing the moral beauty of another human being.
2: You've dealt with so many people and helped so many people, and I'm sure you've come across a number of people who are, I'm thinking about the title of a Richard Farina novel, I've Been Down So Long It Looks Like Up To Me. I mean, there are people who are that down. They just can't extend themselves. They can't be in awe. They're immobilized. They're almost paralytic, really.
1: Yeah, so I'm taking in your question, and I'm also with the people who are listening, because this is a hard thing to carry, um, that we know people like that, or or it can be a phase of our own life in which we feel isolated and lost and so forth. One of the beautiful things that I've learned over these years, and it's not to take it lightly at all, is that the human heart also has the capacity for enormous compassion. And again, the research, you know, at Yale University, they tracked pre verbal infants who want to reach out and help when someone hurt, is hurting or loses something. You know, they track their sound and eye movements and so It's built into us. And so maybe the first step, like Pema Children with that woman in the Um, in that great gathering in San Francisco is just to realize that we have the capacity to hold our sorrows and our measure of um, suffering with compassion rather than judgment, rather than fear, almost as if you could wrap yourself um, with the cloak of Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion, or Mother Mary, or whoever, whatever kind of archetypal image, um, so that you know that you're not alone and that, that's, that, that we have done this.
2: Does that include the monsters? I mean, you know, the warmongers and the despots and those kind of...
1: I knew we would get to this, Michael, because y- you um, you're so thoughtful and honest and you don't want to gloss over the... The suffering of the world. So I I I, I came prepared. I expected <laughs> this question. Um and it's not, you know, and I don't mean to make light of it, although I can laugh a little bit, because it's a very serious question and, and I know you ask it in that in that way.
2: I'm also, I should say, as you know, a seeker, and I've found wisdom from you through the years. So I ask you those kinds of questions that I think not only go through my consciousness, but probably many others like me.
1: So a couple of things to respond. The first is that um, without trying to talk about the causes and conditions and you know how many of those who terrorize others were in some way terrorized themselves as children or in their past, that's not to excuse anything or to say that that's the simplistic answer. It's only one part of it. But this I know when I do a compassion or loving-kindness meditation. I can include the worst of humanity one at a time, and there I won't name them, but you all have your list. And what I do is I wish, may you be free from fear. May you be free from hatred. May you be free from ignorance. Um, may you find a way to have peace in your own heart. And I can wish that for anybody. I can wish that for the warmongers and the um, the worst of the, you know, despots, if you will, Um, because that is genuinely what I wish, Um, and it changes my relationship. It doesn't mean they're not there or that we don't have to stand up for justice and be out on the streets or do what needs to be done internationally, but I don't want to let them... colonize my heart, take over and say that I'm going to be like them, even in hating them. And when I think of my great inspiration and dear friend Mahagosananda, Sananda, who was the Gandhi of Cambodia, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize many times, um, standing up in front of hundreds of thousands of refugees in the Cambodian camps where I got to be with him and work together with him, And he looked at people who'd been through immense trauma of the kind that genocide and the horrors of war and all of that. And all 19 members of his family had been killed. So he had a kind of moral authority to speak. And he put his hands together, gazed out over this crowd of people who came to listen to him and chanted in this ancient language and Sanskrit and Cambodian, this one of the first verses in the Buddhist text that says, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And you could see the faces of trauma of a grandmother with her two surviving grandchildren. And after a while, people just started chanting with him because he kept repeating it. And it was as if he was saying something that was a truth even bigger than their sorrow that still it was true hatred never ceases by hatred but by love alone is healed and for 15 years he led people back on foot to their villages chanting that he said you can't go in a bus you can't go in the back of a truck you have to reclaim your land and your spirit and your heart and we will do that step by step and they'd be ringing a bell and chanting that those words and walk back to their province or their community from the refugee camps.
2: There's faith in that, though. There's faith in the loving heart, which I believe you have as well. And to some extent, I guess, because I'm a seeker, because I'm also a skeptic, I think that hearts, for whatever reason, sometimes not. It's nothing to do with what they're born with biologically, but can be poisoned and can be toxic, really, in so many ways. And so... We have to be aware of that, don't we? I mean, especially when we're being want to be compassionate and generous and all of those positive things that you emphasize.
1: Well, there is also fierce compassion, Michael. It doesn't mean that <clears throat> with compassion and even understanding the suffering of those who are causing suffering um, that then you turn your gaze away. But in fact, it has something harder, which is to see it clearly and to see in feel into the suffering, um, and then respond. And, you know, when you look at the teachings of meditation that I followed for 50 years since being starting as a Buddhist monk, um, people tend to think of meditation and mindfulness as kind of a passive activity, that you get quiet, you quiet the mind, you open the heart, but there you're sitting there on your you know, bespoke Zafu in a very comfortable place <laughs> somewhere in Northern California. I'm making fun of myself, I have to say. Anyway, um, but it has two parts, like breathing in and breathing out. The, even the word for mindfulness, sati sampajenya, means mindful presence and mindful response. Or in Zen, they say, there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden, and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. And so you quiet the mind and open the heart, that's one part, and then you respond. Compassion actually is a verb, it's not a. It's not just a state of the heart, but it's the, the deliberate response. And one more little piece to add, to tease apart compassion and empathy, because empathy is that ability to feel together with another. Um, But if you're walking by a school play yard and a kid is being bullied, you might feel empathy for that child being bullied. The next step of compassion gets you to walk over to them and kind of be a presence that helps to stop that or maybe to talk to the teacher or talk to the authorities, the school principal, so that compassion has both the Period of empathy where you feel with others and then sweeping the garden.
2: Does that include compassion for the bully?
1: It does, actually. Yeah. It does. We've
2: got some questions coming in. Let me go to them. First one is from Juan in Mexico City. He says, uh, It says that meditation helps you have good health. What's your opinion about that? Well, again, the data. Pretty much supports that. Doesn't it? it
1: does very well. It does. Um, there's now been about nine or ten thousand studies on mindfulness and meditation in the last few decades, and it helps with emotional regulation. It helps with physical healing. It actually increases or promotes the study that was done of John Kabat-Zinn's eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction in healing of several kinds of disorders. Show that it sped up healing. But more than that, um, it brings a kind of when done well, and well means mostly that you just do it. The, there's only really one bad kind of meditation; that's th- that's the one you don't do. But anyway, if you're practicing, whether it's a you know a mindfulness practice or a compassion practice, um, it actually changes the regulation of your body so that the fight, flight, or freeze, anxiety, and those things which modern life triggers in us. Um, when it's ongoing, is really bad for us. But to be able to reduce that with a sense of well-being um, changes everything.
2: Can that take away from what sometimes is a flight or fight that can help you survive better because of the exigencies of what you're under? I don't
1: think you got to worry about that, Michael. You know, if you step off the curb and a car comes careening around the corner, No amount of meditation is going to, you know, it's going to stop your body from saying, let's get the heck out of here and jumping back on the curb. There's something so deeply built into our bodies and our being that wants to survive. Um, And then, in fact, um, and it's all healthy. So there's a useful kind of stress and a useful kind of immediate response. Um, We don't want to live there.
2: But we've talked about this before, I think. Yeah. You know, we know there are people who are driven, they're driven to succeed, they're driven to, because of money or fame or whatever, and they'll tell you, if they reduce that kind of stress and meditate, it takes away from the drive that motivates them. I'm sure you've heard that. I have heard from Alpha it, types, and I And not even alpha types, all types.
1: And I have some dubiety about it, let me say, because um, I do know al- alpha types, and for some strange reason in this at this point in my life, I've also become the mentor for a whole bunch of gaggle of, of CEOs and zillionaires and things like that. And maybe they're, they're the odd group among them because they're actually looking for, how do I live a more compassionate or peaceful life inside? I haven't seen anybody in actual practice, even though there's a lot of drivenness, where it doesn't benefit them to center themselves, where it doesn't benefit themselves to downregulate all the alarm. And my dear friend, George Mumford, who is the meditation mindfulness coach for the LA Lakers and the Chicago Bulls during the years when they got all the championships and so forth, so he worked with everybody, Michael Jordan and Kobe and all of those people, um, And they all need, they're tremendously competitive and tremendously skilled. They also needed ways to steady and regulate
2: themselves. I can tell you, I did a couple of CEO conferences in my day, and inevitably, they talk about all kinds of things having to do with business and, you know, the enterprise they were in or just tactical sort of warfare and competition, all that. But what came across from their wives or their partners who were with them was they need downtime. They need to relax. You know, they just weren't doing any of that. They, weren't, they needed to learn how to do that. And
1: you get to be actually more skillful and in some way more wisely responsive when you have that, when you're not just on alarm all the time. But I see it at every level. We're talking about CEOs. I, <clears throat> together with um, Tara Brock, a dear friend, we started a company called Cloud Sangha. Sangha means community. It's the thing we're talking about how we help each other. Because even these CEOs calling me saying, hey, you know, I'm really having a hard time. How do I do this? Cloudsangha.co um, has groups for people who want to um, be part of a small group of people with a teacher that meet every week. And say, all right, how are you doing when you go into work, when you're raising your young children or your grandchildren or when you're struggling, you know, with your own physical illness or when you're trying to learn how to meditate and be an artist or creative person or in your business. And the the feedback that I get regularly is that having a place where you can not only slow down and practice together, but also talk about how it actually Works in your life is incredibly helpful
2: here's uh Hasmuk who says, "I have done a few uh vipassana ten day meditation retreats. Do you have any thoughts on Vipassana Well that's been kind of your calling card, hasn't it?
1: Yes, or uh, um another pronunciation is vipassana, and um
2: it's one of the, those words I always see on this page but never hear. you
1: don't hear you don't hear it spoken exactly and the word vipassana means to see clearly and so there are all kinds of retreats around and since he said 10-day retreats it's very possible there's a whole series of 10-day retreats following an indian teacher who i admire a lot named goenka um you know again first i really respect what he did what he's doing and it is a little bit like um, sit and sweep the garden, that the game is to be able to do, to to step out and to do a practice retreat and meditate, not in order to have great meditative states. They may come and hallelujah, that's wonderful. Um, but it changes you in other ways. It allows you to sit with yourself with your joys and sorrows and you know, your longings and your love, and be in the middle of it, and then discover that you can become the loving witness of it. Instead of being lost in everything that comes, I have to do that, and I'm afraid of this, and I need to get that, and the ambition, and the the um, anxiety, and so forth. The fact is that we can actually take a half step back, as Zen Master Dogan said, and become the mindful, loving awareness that, that witnesses these And then have space around them um, so that we can choose which to follow or which to let go of instead of being completely identified or caught by everything that comes through. And it's a remarkable thing that with loving awareness, we can actually observe our own thought process. We can step out of it and say, oh. Stand outside of ourselves? bigger than our thoughts, exactly. Oh, there's the thoughts of fear. There are the thoughts of love. There are the, you know, there are the these emotions. And instead of taking everyone and going for a ride, because it grabs us and then we get lost in it. Sometimes a whole maelstrom of emotions. Uh, exactly. And one of the things that surprises people when they sit in meditation, they think they're going to get quiet. And one of the first insights is called seeing the waterfall because you don't realize that constant inner story making and you know remembering and planning and visioning and so forth, um, how busy it is in there. And when you sense it, and then find simple ways to quiet yourself with your settling your body, your breath, and so forth, you do step, you become bigger than that. You become the field of mindful, loving awareness that says, oh yes, And it gives you spaciousness and much more ease.
2: And let me thank those of you sending your questions in, appreciative of them. Here's Eric from Kansas City who says, Can you speak about how we reconcile the need for non-attachment to outcomes, for instance, with our calling to seek justice?
1: This is a really deep and beautiful question. And, you know, the part of me that's been an activist over the years and— worked in Burma or in Palestine and Israel or or other places here in the US um, in modest ways, quite honestly, because I've really mostly been a meditation teacher and so forth. But I had to do that. I couldn't just sit. I had to sweep, you know. (laughs) Um, So I'm deeply sympathetic to the question and to the longing for justice and the need to stand up for justice. However, not however. And um, two important things to say. First is you don't want to, in seeking justice, contribute to the atmosphere that created the injustice. And so if you go out at it from a place of anger and hatred to try to stop hatred and misuse of other people, you actually add to it. And I've worked with activists over the years, many burned out activists, you know, who were doing it fueled by their own anger to say, we're in it for the long haul. If we want to save the, the lungs of the earth and the forests and the oceans, if we want to stand up for children who are being misused, we have to do it, but we don't want to add to the hatred and to the anger because it makes it worse. And there's a way to stand up that is so powerful. And we have all our exemplars. We have Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, and we have, oh, I love um, this passage from Ellen Sirleaf and Lehman Gbowee, who got the Nobel Prize Peace Prize, who said, Liberia used to be known for its child soldiers, and now it's known for its women leaders. That says that You can address these, you can stand up, you can stop things, but you also can do it with the power of love. So that's the first part of the response, um, is to actually be that, uh, and then go into the circumstances. Um, And then the other is, because the question was about attachment, and I love this passage from Thomas Merton, a great Christian mystic, who was in a dialogue with an activist And he said, when you do your work, when you stand up for justice, when you do this, don't be attached to the results. He said, to do it well, turn yourself in the direction of justice and care and do everything you can, plant seeds and stand up and so forth, but the result is not in your hand. What's given to you is to plant seeds, to do things well, but it's not given to you to cling to or wait for the result instead you must rely on the truth and the value and the honesty of the work you do itself and know that in its own time it will bear fruit and and he's really trying to say that we can stand up for justice and really and do what needs to be done but do it with a do it with a peaceful heart
2: Two questions. Do you believe, like King did, that we're on a trajectory toward justice?
1: That the moral arc of the universe may be long exactly. and it bends toward justice? I hope so, Michael.
2: <laughs> so do I.
1: I hope so. Sure that hope. And I, and I also love Stephen Pinker and others, you know, who you probably interviewed from Harvard and, you know, talking about— the improvements in human well-being in the last number of centuries—that however terrible it is now—and it is terrible in places, whether it's, you know, Sudan or or there are many who argue Ukraine. We don't have to. We don't have to go down the list. Optimism. But there's less warfare than there was centuries ago. That's true. There's less slavery. There's less, you know, child, you know, labor in terrible ways. There's better treatment of women, even though it's still terrible in lots of places around the world. We think Afghanistan and others, so forth. But there's a way in which the world is also becoming more conscious as human beings, and maybe we're being forced to, and maybe we're we're inspired to. Um, so it it in spite of it all, um, it makes me hopeful.
2: Well, from your lips to whatever ears are up there. Uh, but I'm just wondering also about. Compassion fatigue, it's real, isn't it?
1: Um,
2: People do suffer from it and complain about it and bring attention to it? Yes,
1: yes. And let me try to respond to it. Um, I think it is real. People who serve um, and put themselves in the situations of a great deal of suffering um, can take it on. Um, In some way that it lodges in their being and they get exhausted. Um, And I don't have a simple answer, but I have a a story to tell that may be helpful to those who are um, asking this question. A woman who I admire a great deal, a psychologist, one of her main jobs for a time was to be a psychologist in conjunction with the United Nations to work with torture survivors. So this is a you know an extremely tough occupation being on the front line. Yeah. And she came on a retreat to practice with me, um, and she'd also, you know visited the Dalai Lama and so forth. And she said, when she sat, all the images of the kinds of torture and stories people had told would go through her mind, and the sad thing is that I could name. You know, 100 countries where people were coming was, you know, yes, you could say Uganda or Haiti or Myanmar, or, but you also include the U.S. I mean, it happens. And it's uh, that alone, just to say that is heartbreaking. So we did some practices. I said, all right, here's some ways to sweep your attention through, the, th- through your body and let the suffering be held back by Mother Earth you know, to give it back to the earth. Um, we did some centering practices. And then I asked her, I said, so tell me about your office. How do you sit? Kind of a weird question. I said, well, people come in, and then I've got a, a chair and a nice place for them. And she described it. I said, all right. I'd like to suggest that you put a big shelf behind where you sit. And on it, I'd like to suggest that you put an image, a peaceful image of the Buddha and one of Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion, and one of Mother Mary, you know, and uh, put an image there, since you're working with people from Haiti, of the Haitian gods, um, put uh, Durga and probably Kali, you're going to definitely need Kali on there, you know, put a Star of David and put a page on the mercy of Allah, you know, in Arabic on there. I said, every God you've heard of put on there, because you need backup. And what I want to suggest to you is that when people come in, they don't see you, but they see who's behind you. And I said, because it's not right, it's not meant for you to carry this level of suffering in your own body. And when you go in in the morning, you can light a candle or put a apple on the altar behind you and look to them and say, okay, wherever, whoever you are, please carry this because it's not mine. And after each session, you know, go and wash your hands and let the water wash things back to the earth. And at the end of the day, make a bow to that altar again and say, you hold this and I will go home and be myself and not the carrier of this. And it made a difference for her Mm. because part of the burnout is somehow we feel responsible, and it's not ours. There's got to be a kind of way that we can find an inner emptiness, what, what uh, spaciousness, what Merton was talking about, so that we're not clinging to the results, but we're listening with tenderness, we're acting the ways we can, we're planting the seeds, and we're trusting that the seeds will grow, and it's not our responsibility to carry it.
2: It's Robert from Los Angeles. What does it mean to be mindful, and why is this important? And we've had all—you know, in fact, I've been giving some mindfulness to mindfulness. uh, Mm -mm. But I've been thinking about how some of this is translated from the East into the West, and there's been a bit of a chasm there, I think, if you'll permit me for putting it so bluntly. Um, So let's go right to the heart of it and how you see things.
1: Well, what's the chasm, Michael?
2: I think it's be- mindfulness has become too popularized. You know, they have mindfulness in elementary schools and I don't know exactly what they're teaching. You know, they're not certainly teaching the stuff that you absorbed and learned and have disseminated um as someone from the west who really went through all of the training and all of the difficulty of turning your mind toward the east and absorbing.
1: So it's all, again a, an important question. Um and of course when anything becomes popular it can be misused and mm-hmm. we're Americans we know how to misuse things it's part the of the most part of our DNA <laughs> it's, our, it's our DNA yeah. so um but I first of all just on a broader scale it doesn't worry me at all cuz I've been again in all these countries around the world and certainly in the Buddhist and Hindu countries in Thailand and Burma and Nepal and Sri Lanka and you know Japan and so forth and they, too, know how to use and misuse it. I mean, it's, it's just because we're human beings. So it makes me smile, you know. And somebody goes into the temple in the morning and makes an offering. Um, and with the offering of prayer that they have a good business day that day or that their, you know, kid gets into the right college. That's, it's just universal. So we take that. But there's something much deeper in that question. And I think there's a reason that it's become popular it's because um, in our culture we lose touch with ourselves. You know, we're so outer-directed, whether it's on our phones and you know, or the media or other other forms. And when we're not present for ourself in some way, um, we get dysregulated. We suffer. Um, mindfulness is one of the most powerful of all human capacities, along with our capacities to survive or to eat and so forth. And it is so because it allows us to step out of the ways that we are caught um, and that we create difficulty for ourselves and others um, and to witness it, to be aware of it, rather than being lost. And this capacity... You know, those who are listening, you know how you get lost. And I don't mean just literally lost sometime, but in the conflicts around you, in the fears you have, in the things you you know, um, have to sort out with others, um, and then how it, internally that happens. And to begin to learn the skill of mindfulness with loving awareness, you begin to see first that everything's impermanent, you know, we tend to fixate it, and then we get, you know, in conflict with it. With mindfulness, there comes an ease and a graciousness. Yes, it's this way, and this is not the end of the story. Let's be open. Let's see what we can do with it. With mindfulness, you learn to live in the present. If you walk down the street and you're spending all your time thinking about that conversation you had and rewriting it and the tasks you have to do, you miss the people walking by, you miss the the clouds after that rainstorm, the colors of you know, the sunset, the lavender and red and orange that's reflected in the windows and in the puddles, you miss your life. Um, and mindfulness becomes liberating in that way.
2: Keeps you from the restlessness, too, of the mindset. It mind, does,
1: right? it does. And it allows you to actually be with the people that you're with or the project that you're doing. And modern neuroscience says it very clearly. Um, You know, we think we can multitask, which we sort of do, but underneath it, we're actually shifting very quickly from one to another, one to another. You can't do two things at once in the brain in that same way, at least as they've measured it, and that's part of ancient Buddhist deep psychology. And the ability to stay present and focus with the person in front of you, with the task, with the day that greets you in the morning, um, changes your relationship to life. Mindfulness is a gateway, if you will. Um, the, the teachings say that life has suffering and it has causes greed, attachment, fear, confusion. And there's a way to extricate yourself, there's a path. Um, a mindfulness
2: to, and meditation? To inner freedom. I, I want to get to that too, but mindfulness and meditation are interlocked. They're in that synergistic. Way,
1: they're they're interlocked. Yeah, yeah meditation is express. It's a training in mindfulness, but you don't only just do it sitting in meditation. You can be mindful, you know, when you're cooking or with your children, or when you're making business decisions and you step back and have a sense of spaciousness.
2: Mindfulness and even meditation. Um, are the past to freedom? How, why is that? I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah. I think I'm just quoting yeah, 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 you directly Yeah, yeah, here yeah thank
1: me. you. Um, well, there's two kinds of— there's the inner freedom and outer freedom, and they, they go together. I mean, I forget who it was, maybe Toni Morrison or someone said the purpose of freedom is to free others. Um, so I, you can't really separate them. As I've been talking about, when we sit and start to get quiet, there can be restlessness and doubt and fear and, you know, overwhelm and sleepiness and, you know, plans and remembering and all that's fine. But if we're caught up in it too much, we lose our center, we lose our well-being, physical and mental. We lose the capacity to see more clearly. With mindfulness, we can Quiet the mind, or step out of those things, and be present in a different way, for ourselves and for others. And then it also allows us to change the environment. And I think of the uh, words of Zen Master Thich Nhat Han, um, where he said, "When the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost." But if even one person on the boat remained steady and calm, it showed the way for everyone to survive. And so we also become that person in the boat of the world or the boat of our community, and it makes all the difference.
2: Here's Susan from Brooklyn. How do you distinguish pain versus suffering?
1: Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Susan. Another important question. Um the simple kind of glib phrase, and I'll then I'll unpack it, is that pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. And again, it's depending how we use these words, so I'm going to use them in a specific way. Life and human incarnation has pain. You have a body, you have pleasure and pain. You have gain and loss, you have fame and disrepute, you have joy and sorrow. Um, It's woven into the fabric of existence. Um, And to learn how to be present for pain um, in a steady and wise way is a tremendously important thing because we'll have times of pain. And I think about working with someone whose child had a really grave illness and, um, you know, they would pace around and they would search the internet and they would do all these. Nothing helped them more than sitting down and just saying, where do you feel this pain? Oh, it's in my heart. It's in my gut. What happens if you let yourself actually just experience it and wrap it as you do with loving awareness and compassion and say, this is what it's like to feel pain? And then maybe extend the compassion and say, how many other fathers... Are sitting with a sick child on this earth at this time, and you realize that it's not just you, but it's our human, it's our human task. So there are ways you learn to be with physical pain in your body or emotional pain, with mindfulness that reduce suffering.
2: Doesn't necessarily make you feel better though to know that there are others in pain for the same reasons that you're in pain, does it?
1: I think that it does. For example, if you're in the middle of a Painful divorce. You can be in a kind of cocoon and say, Oh, all my friends, they're married or they're, you know, they're single or whatever, and I'm the one that's suffering, right? But if you get a little quiet and realize that today there are, you know, 2,743,871 other people in North America who are feeling the struggle and the pain of divorce. You realize it's not just you. You don't blame yourself as much. You don't judge yourself. You say, "Okay, this is what we have to do. We have to learn how to do this," and 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 it takes away that sense of self judgment and isolation. A
2: funny thought, though, Jack. I have to confess. I yeah. Remember the comedian Henry Morgan? You know, from, I'm dating myself here as a dinosaur, one of the early television programs. I've got a secret. Back no.
1: with with Jack Benny and. Uh, of yes. that era, yeah. yeah.
2: Henry Morgan said, I got a toothache, and I'm thinking about all these other people who are going through, but the toothache is mine, yes. and I'm feeling the pain. Yes, And to think about those other people, in other words, it was a little philosophizing from a, from a comic, but it made I, sense. I, 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 I mean, it,
1: it, I appreciate that, and there's, there's some truth, because if you don't learn how to deal with your own pain, um, then your life will be really a great struggle. And it's one of the beautiful things that you learn sitting in meditation is to do that but if also you think you're the only one um, it also isolates you so these actually can go together it's not one or the other and you know you want a dentist with some good um, nitrous oxide or whatever it is to help you with your pain (laughs) I'll
2: go to some more questions in a moment but I was also I was listening to one of your tapes and you were talking about the Dharma, and the Dharma body, and the body of Buddha, and I must confess, a lot of this was sort of mysterious to me, uh, as it probably would be to most Westerners and everything. Could you break that down in terms of what you want to communicate?
1: So, Dharma is a Sanskrit word that has a complexity of meanings. It's a big word, just like love has, you know, I love... um, Ben and Jerry's ice cream and I love my child and I love, you know, the earth and it can have have all kinds of meanings. Um, The meanings for Dharma, the simplest meanings are one is um, the teachings that bring well-being, the teachings of freedom, compassion, and so forth. So that's one of its meanings. And so then people say, I practice dharma, which means I practice these trainings of loving kindness, compassion, mindfulness, and so forth. Dharma also means, the word dharma also means the truth. So I practice to see the way the world is truthfully.
2: And the truth shall set you free.
1: The truth shall set you free. And part of that truth is that everything is impermanent, that you can't hold on to it. You can tend it and love it, but you can't possess it. I mean, try it with your children. You can love them, but the more possessive you get, they won't like it, you know? Especially when they're teenagers. Exactly, but whatever. Possession in that way is, so you see the laws of things that, things change. How can you live in a wise and gracious way where you can live with love and care but not with the kind of clinging and fear that makes suffering. So that's another mo- meaning of dharma: to see the way things are and to live in it wisely. One other meaning is sometimes dharma also means what is your task in this world, and this is a fun one in a in a certain way. I mean, it, you know, in some kinds of your assignment, your destiny, or whatever. We'll use these words because it's playful. What, what is, you know, central casting given to you? But I love this, pa- this thought from my dear friend, Maladoma Somme, who is a West African shaman and medicine man with a couple of PhDs from the Sorbonne and an American in you know, Michigan or something. Anyway, he said, for the Dagora people, his people in West Africa, he said, we believe that every child is born with a certain cargo, and their task in life is to deliver their cargo, and I really love this metaphor. It's like the the rivers in West Africa that have been plied for centuries by you know boats and ships trading. Um, and what he means somehow is that for us to be fulfilled, we each have certain gifts, um, and that our happiness in part depends on finding ways to offer those gifts. And they don't have to be some magnificent thing that you're w- winning a Grammy for your gift.
2: It can be sweeping and it doing can it be, well, right?
1: As Martin Luther King said, if a man sweeps streets for a living, you know, he should sweep the way Beethoven composed music and Michelangelo painted and and uh, Shakespeare wrote his plays with that kind of dignity. And um, it's exactly that.
2: Here's a question from Chris in Tempe, Arizona. I think of meditation and states of mindfulness metaphorically as opening one's eyelids after a lifetime of elective blindness, opening one's ears to hear after a lifetime of elective deafness. Is this consistent with your views and teachings? I love
1: this question, and it reminds me of some of the poetry of M. E. Cummings, where he talks about, now the eyes of my eyes are open, and the ears of my ears are open.
2: Yeah. We're both lovers of poetry, and when you mention Cummings— was an anti-Semite, but we won't go there. Um, But he did say something that keeps coming back to me in a lesser-known poem called Pity This Busy Monster, Man Unkind, with a pun on man unkind. He says, there's a hell of a good universe next door. Let's go.
1: (laughs) Well, maybe that's Elon Musk's, um, you know, starship, let's go colonize Mars. But the problem is that there'll be human beings going there. You know, And we will carry everything that's in us with us.
2: But we um, may have to go to another planet, realistically, <laughs> with, the, with the way climate change is going. Uh. So,
1: all right, let's talk about that for a second, just because I want to kind of expand the game a little bit. Um, yeah. One of my friends um, is someone who's very deeply involved in... Uh, nuclear fusion projects mm-hmm. and um, he says they've they've got one of the best in the world and it's one of the kinds that are not the giant, huge ones that cost billions and billions, but the smaller ones using lasers pointed to each other and so forth, that they're very close to having a workable fusion reactor. Um, that's no bigger than a house, so it's not some huge thing or smaller even than that. Um, and their goal is to be able to fabricate these when they get permission from the nuclear regulatory in the next year, year and a half, by, by the thousands. And that within, within a decade, um, they will produce all the power that's needed on the planet without oil or anything else now you, you know
2: fusion is the future there's no doubt about
1: so it. so you know you may say okay this is just more but the, the, the reason i'm saying it is not because it's true because i don't know i mean what he believes is true and i i i respect this person but i just want to expand our imagination that we are in a pickle so to speak with climate uh, worse than that we're in a real tragedy with the loss of species and the millions of climate refugees. How we turn it around, um, human beings are also survivors and incredibly ingenious. And I don't think that the loss of the earth is the end of the story. It just isn't.
2: I will internalize that and Make it at that thing with feathers uh, that Emily Dickinson talks about. Thank you. It does sound like winged as it be. And here's Reed from Santa Rosa who says, "Thank you for your teachings, Jack. Sometimes I have an inner voice that manifests as a critic of my actions or ambitions. Is there a way to integrate or make peace with this voice to turn it into an ally or a helper?"
1: Beautiful, beautiful question, and um, it's so interesting uh, that you articulate it because it's so common for us as human beings, first a little uh, uh, anecdote from Julia Childs, the great French chef, or American French chef, um, where she said, if you're in the kitchen and you drop the lamb, you can just pick it up, who's gonna know, right? And there's something in the spirit of that in which the judging mind is part of the mind, the, in that way it's not the point is not to get rid of it i hate judgment i want to get rid of it i don't want to be so judgmental of myself and so forth but what's that it's just more judgment instead you can turn toward it offer it a little bow and say thank you for trying to help me you know or thank you for your opinion you know whose voice it is they programmed it in there long ago, whoever that was, you know, thank you for trying to keep me safe. Thank you. Um, and then say, I'm fine now. And so the point is in some ways, um, not to struggle against it or to judge yourself or the judgment, but to pick up the lamb, which is to say the next task you do, you're cooking or you're, you know, you're writing something or you're, you know, traveling somewhere and to say, thank you for keeping me safe. Um, I'm okay. And this capacity that we have to notice how we get caught in unhealthy patterns and then to smile and say, yeah, because it's trying to save you. It's not, that's the turning around. You can appreciate it. Okay. It's trying to keep you safe. I'm good. It's all right. Thank you. Whoever it is. Um,
2: You're also trained as a psychologist, and I yeah. can't help thinking about the superego, which one of my friends described once as a cop with a baton, you know, that is swinging Whacking wildly you. and yes. hitting you in sometimes anatomically sensitive places in addition to maybe your cranium. Uh, you have well, your
1: your image, Michael, then I have to say, um, and I with with great respect for those who are really good police and officers— we also have this flood of information of those who have misused that position. And the killing of black American men is just the kind of tip of the iceberg of how things can be misused and have at times. Um, we don't want to become them. If that inner cop is beating you with a baton and you say, OK, I'm going to get my baton or my gun or whatever, you get it. It's not a very good fight. And you suffer and they suffer.
2: That's why I like that metaphor, because it does involve pain and suffering.
1: Right. Exactly right. So instead, instead of, you know, battling the cop, you can say thank you for trying to keep us all safe on your beat, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and sort of step out of the way and say I appreciate it. Um, you've done a good job so far, but right now I'm actually okay, and I don't, you know, you don't have to follow it.
2: Chris It says, could you comment on how the yogi meditating in a cave impacts humanity overall? Can their work reach others? Is there unseen mechanisms by which this might happen?
1: There are unseen mechanisms by which many things could happen. And, you know, and I mean, it's a beautiful question because um, we're learning so many things each decade, whether it's about the cosmos with the new, you know, web telescope there showing us the it's the surprises of the early universe, you know, and maybe it wasn't what we thought, and and so forth, or or genetics or inner science, um, and those are the those are the kind of physically measure, me- measured things. We are consciousness. We are conscious. That's your capacity to hear these words and Michael's words and so forth. You're not your body. It's very clear. Consciousness was born into your body, um, and it will leave it when you, when you die, you'll see. You'll float out of your body and go, wow, that was quite an incarnation, or whatever you say. Um, but you're clearly not your body, and I've sat with so many people in hospice and dying who literally drift out of their body and come back and say, wow, I had no idea, or, and I've had all these out-of-body experiences in meditation. Who we are is consciousness itself. Mm. born in these forms. Um, And in that way, there's all kinds of mysterious things. I used to not believe in a lot of stuff like this because my family was all scientists. My father was a scientist. My brother was a great engineer and scientist. Another was, you know, the chief building inspector of San Francisco, studied architect, engineer, all these things. Another was a you know, director of a giant, of a genentech, big biotech. So I come from a lineage of scientists, and I was very skeptical. I didn't believe in a lot of things. Now I kind of believe in everything, you know, and not in a kind of um, woo-woo way, but there are mysteries that are so great. We do affect each other, and we do interact with each other, not just in physical ways, and how that might happen, I don't know. Um, and whether that yogi is affecting the world, all I could say is, I hope so.
2: be a wonderful note to end on, but I want to end on something else because I was reminded of Nippon Meta, our 17th episode, uh, in terms of this Grey Matter with Michael Krasnia podcast that we're doing. And I should mention Jack has a podcast too, put a plug in for that. Um, But we were talking about gratitude around Thanksgiving. And my question to you is, I know gratitude is good. It makes us feel better. Uh, It's a positive thing. But to be grateful to what or to whom is the question that continues to haunt me as someone who once did a book on agnosticism. Um, Do you have any wisdom to shed on that?
1: Well, I have a question for you, Michael. Have you ever experienced gratitude not to some deity or some whatever, but just plain gratitude. Sure. How'd it feel?
2: Like I said, it feels good.
1: Yeah. So
2: So that's your advice.
1: How about we drop the ideas about it being grateful to some other, you know, whatever it is, and to be grateful for life itself in some way. There's this beautiful film that my friend Louis Schwartzberg made on gratitude um, together with brothers David Stendelrast, who you probably know, who's now 94 and a kind of exemplar of gratitude. Um, And he shows people in all these amazing circumstances and their moments of feeling grateful. And you watch it like you're talking about and you go, oh yeah, ooh, yeah, me too. Oh yeah, that, that as well. And so we somehow we affect each other, and gratitude is one way of having the, gratitude's a form of love, really, of feeling that love. And the last thing I just want to remind people again about cloud sangha, I'm doing it today, because we catch it from one another, is the other thing, I'm thinking about that, and that that's a way to have a, 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 a pot of people That are your gratitude buddies that say, oh, this is what I'm grateful for, or your compassion buddies, this is what I'm holding with the heart of compassion.
2: Well, I'm grateful for you, and uh, grateful that we spent this time with you, and I think I'm speaking for all who heard today's podcast, or will hear it. It's been a delight, and it's always been, I'll use the word I used initially, enlightening, and certainly you bring a lot of light. Thank you for that.
1: I thank you, Michael, and also I must say, having listened to you for decades, your level of being curious and interested and open-minded and probing and incredibly well-prepared and well-read, it's like, I'm grateful for that and for you and for all that you've done, and it's kind of wondrous in its own way. So thank you.
2: Thank you.